everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. With me today on Everyday Theology, I say it a lot, but it, this really is a true thing. Someone who has whose writing has formed me uh, in deep, deep ways. So I'm I'm kind of nerding out. I'm I'm real excited to have with me Dr. Michael Gorman. Uh, Dr. Gorman, thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I'm I'm more than happy to be here, and I don't want you to nerd out too much. <laughs> eh, I like it every every so often. <laughs> Dr. Gorman is the Raymond E. Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University. Dr. Gorman, if you wouldn't mind um, letting our listeners know a little bit more about you, where you got to where you are, and anything else about you that they might find interesting. Well, I don't know if they'll find it interesting, but I'm happy to... um to say something. So again, thanks so much, Aaron, for having me on. I, I appreciate it. And um, I'm glad to be introduced to your podcast. I don't know exactly where to begin. I became a Christian believer as a as about a 15-year-old, having been raised in the church, but not ever having any kind of um, personal faith and um, that led me to want to, to go on to study at a Christian college. I was going to be a French major and become a French teacher. And I did, be, I did actually do both of those things. Wow. But in, in the po- process of learning French, I realized I also wanted to be able to read the New Testament in Greek. So I took Greek as my second language or third language or something like that. Oh, gosh. If you, if you can't remember how many languages you've learned... There's well, far that, too many. That's that's the uh, I, I'm a I'm a language lover to begin with, but you know biblical studies is a lot a lot about languages anyhow. So I fell in love with the Greek New Testament and studying it in college, and decided to go on f- from there after teaching for a couple of years for an MDiv and a PhD in New Testament, and during that process fell in love with Paul. So it was from French to Greek to Paul, sort of in that, <laughs> in that order. And um, ended up writing a, a PhD dissertation at Princeton Seminary on the Apostle Paul, and got out and was jobless, uh, at least in the field of New Testament studies, for a couple of years. Did some high school teaching, came back to my native state of Maryland, and was fortunate. I was working for a nonprofit at the time, and was able to get an adjunct position at the place where I am now. And that actually wow. happened. That interview happened 30 years ago this week, I think. Wow. So I was offered a part-time job and then later uh, that became a full-time job. So I've been at the same institution now for 30 years. That's amazing. In, in various capacities, but all teaching that whole time. Was it, I was an administrator, a dean for a long time. Um, but but it's an interesting place. St. Mary's Seminary and University is the oldest Catholic seminary in the United States and the only one in the world that has an ecumenical graduate school as, huh. part, as part of it. Yeah. So I started out teaching in the ecumenical graduate school. I'm Methodist, not Catholic, and ended up um, being dean of that division. And then when I left that position 10 years ago, nine, nine or 10 years ago, um, 
was given the position that I have now, uh, which is a full-time re- full-time teaching and research position. So I was fortunate during my early years, I had three three young children and didn't feel any need to to do research and writing. But eventually after teaching, I wanted to put some of what I had developed in the teaching sphere and into into print. And so my teaching and research career kind of took off in my in my 40s, not in my 20s or 30s. I had yeah. done some I'd done some writing writing and research earlier, but um, most of my publications are from 2001 on. That's only 20 years ago, even though I'm 65 years old. So there's hope for some of us. That's that absolutely hope. anything. I have I have students getting their PhDs in their in their later years, 40s, 50s, 60s. Well, I never planned for it to be so late for me. I kept saying, oh, I'll be done by 30. And every year ticked by and said, no, not this year. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, well, life happens, right? It does. It does. Really interesting. How, how, I don't know if this is even the right question. It's not even in the, in the vein of what we were going to talk about, but how do you find yourself in being a, a Methodist among Catholics? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm a I'm an unusual Methodist too. I have some Anabaptist tendencies, quite a few actually. I have some semi-Catholic tendencies. So there's there's some interesting overlap. Um, there was a lot of Catholic Wesleyan dialogue some years back, which I wasn't part of, but there is enough interesting... Um, similarities in certain areas that make it a, a good fit. And I've been given a lot of freedom over the years to do what I want to do. And um, my students, for the most part, accept me as a, as a, as a devout Christian who happens to be a Paul scholar. And <laughs> some of them want me to, some of them want me to, to, to cross the Tiber, as some people say, but that's, that's, that's a story for another day. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian before I'm anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that helps us kind of move into that conversation on, on Paul and thinking about kind of what Paul was doing in his space. Right. And particularly what we, you know, talked about before coming to the podcast and, uh, I thought there would be kind of one or two really big areas that I'd love to chat about. And the first one is one that, you know, in the breadth of Christian writing, there doesn't seem to be a lot of writing about compared to other topics, right? Especially compared to something like justification or salvation or mm-hmm. many of the other uh, terms that we see a lot. You know, you've written some pretty pretty instrumental works on what Paul meant and using this term kenosis in Philippians. And I think for a lot of Christians, that word is pro- can be new, that word is confusing, and even what we do with it when we learn the word can be hard anyways. So my first question really, as this being a point of a few of your books, really, um, what is kenosis and why was Paul so concerned with it when he was writing to the church at Philippi to tell them to have the same mind as Christ? Yeah. Well, yeah, this we could have a very long conversation about this, so I'll, I'll try to cut to some of the chase at least. There is, in Philippians chapter 2, this 
set of verses that some scholars call it a poem or a hymn even. I like, I used to call it a hymn, now I call it a poem. Verses six to 11 that begin with a little introductory phrase have, well, this is, everything about this section is hard to translate, uh, but have this mind in you, which is in Christ Jesus, or have this mind, which was in Christ Jesus, or have this mind among yourselves, because you are in Christ Jesus. Um, <laughs> that, my, that's my preferred translation. That um, who, although, or perhaps because he was in the form of God, uh, did not equal, uh, count equality with God as something to exploit for his own advantage, but emptied himself. Mm. Uh, taking on the uh, form of a servant. And uh, so this emptied himself, the verb to empty there is, uh, has been the subject of disputes for many, many years, hundreds of years. And the question is whether Christ actually emptied himself of something or whether we should take that idea of emptying, the verb kenao, so that's where we get the word kenosis, the act of self-emptying, kenao, kenosis, whether that is really more of a poetic and metaphorical term, hmm. referring to what's described in that poem as self-giving, self-surrender, self-abandonment, if you will, to the max. Right. I lean toward that latter poetic metaphorical interpretation, as I think most uh, interpreters of Paul do. We don't sit around and try to figure out, did Paul, did, rather did Christ get rid of his divine omniscience or omnipotence right, or some right. other attribute? That's the way that a lot of the theological conversation has gone. But I think today, at least, most, most not all, but most interpreters of Paul would say it's it's more about his self-abandonment, his self-surrender, his self-giving. And that then becomes, for Paul, the almost the governing motif, if you will, of his understanding of Christ. Yeah. And it becomes, for him, the essence of what Christ did in becoming human and then going all the way to the cross, that essence, if you will, that it's a story. It, it, it moves from height to depth to greater depth, if you will. Um, that narrative movement of self-surrender, of self-emptying, of self-giving becomes Paul's understanding of the story of Christ. It becomes his own story of mm, his own yeah. life of ministry, and it becomes the story of what he wants to pass on and see embodied in his churches, in the communities he either started or or you know, pastored in some way or right. wrote to. So um, the term that I use for that, for the essence of that self-giving is cruciformity, um, which means being conformed to the crucified Christ. Or we could say, if we wanted to, to the incarnate and crucified Christ. Right. That story of, there's, there's a similarity in that story between his self-giving and incarnation, which is really what the kenosis refers to, is incarnation, that continues then into his, into his, his crucifixion. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think a lot of times people end up, because of, because of us theologians, right, we just ruin everything. Uh, because we try to 
to understand that word more in its implications, as you're mentioning, right? Like, did Christ give up his omniscience, his omnipotence, whatever part of it that he emptied himself from, and then almost use that as a means of going back to reading the story of Jesus to try and understand certain things, right? To understand why Jesus would seem not to know something or why Jesus wouldn't do something or couldn't do something, right? Versus really getting a sense of what Paul is trying to do, which is trying to shape people in the likeness of Christ in a different way. Yeah. There's a book out right now. I wish I could think of the title of the author. I just saw it within the last week on kenosis in the gospel of Mark, basically about those passages where Jesus says things like, you know, you take up your cross and follow me or welcome this child or those who lose their, you know, seek their life will lose it. Those who lose their life will gain it. Um, If I came among you as a servant, you know, you need to also be a servant, that, that kind of language. The word kenosis does not appear in the gospel of Mark. So right. the, 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 term itself certainly is is broader than Paul, both in terms of theoretically thinking about Jesus and thinking about Christian theology and Christian faith, but it goes back to Paul, obviously. Right. And I think some theologians have pointed out it's important for us to realize that kenosis, the term both in history and in contemporary theology, is is more it's a term that's taken on a life of its own. It's more right. than just whatever Philippians 2 means. But if we're going to start where the term originated, let's at least get that straight. It it may be the case that Jesus couldn't do a miracle in X place because he had given up in some way divine uh, omnipotence. But clearly, Jesus did a lot of other things that we attribute to God. Right. He didn't completely give up divine omnipotence. Um, If we say he, he gave up divine omniscience, well, Maybe, but in the Gospel of John, he certainly seems to know a lot and knows people. So, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not primarily a theologian. I'm primarily a biblical scholar. I would prefer for us to think about the implications of the metaphorical and poetic use of empty rather than go down what I think is a misguided attempt to sort out certain divine attributes and then right. attribute attribute them to Jesus. You know, human personality, he, he, his human nature couldn't do certain things because he had given them up. I, I don't, I'm not sure that's the most constructive way to go. Right. And I think that's, you know, to talk about what you argue when you talk about cruciformity is really talking about being shaped to be in the person of Christ, which seems to be a better argument from Paul than an expose on who Jesus was and his divinity and his humanity, Right. Yeah, exactly. So it results in some interesting books. Um, I was turning around to my bookshelf behind me. Sorry. Uh, There's a book called Kinetic Kinetic Politics, the adjective form of kenosis. So it's it's largely a book about what it would mean to to live a a kenotic life in the political realm. You know, in in the in the the realm of um, uh, the Christian Church in the public square. So there's there's ways that this has great implications for Christian life. But again, we need to, from my point of view, at least, we need to start back at the beginning and see what was Paul trying to communicate by using that language. I was just, I just had a class on Pauline epistles right before we came on for the podcast. 
And our text for today was the second half of Second Corinthians, in which there is that famous text about um, although or because perhaps uh, <laughs> Christ was rich for our sakes, he became poor so that we might from his poverty, I'm sorry, from his wealth become uh, rich. We who were poor would become rich. Right. That's that similar language of he was his incarnation and his whole life was one of moving from that divine power and wealth to the poverty of being human in comparison to the, the richness of being God. And yet, that's why this question of although or because, did Jesus do what he did in the incarnation and the crucifixion in spite of being equal with God? Or did he do it because he was equal with God as an right. expression, as an expression of, of his divinity? And um, I argue in a couple of places, including long articles and chapters and books, um, precisely for the because interpretation. Um, yeah. And maybe help out with that a little bit and kind of explore sure. those two options, right? What is the difference between in spite of God, you know, Christ giving up of himself in spite of being God versus Christ giving up of himself because he was God or as right. God? Yeah. So the first one is the most common interpretation. Um, in Greek, the word because is not there, and the word although or though is not there in, in Philippians or in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Uh, it simply in Greek says being, so being in the form of God. So interpreters have to figure out, well, do we just leave it being, or do we go to our Greek grammar books and figure out what are the possible implications? So we know from other uses of the participle, that's I-N-G words in English, that it can sometimes mean what's called a concessive use, although X, something else happened. Right. That's in almost every translation, that's the one that people will read, though or although. A very few, very, very few have simply the ING being in the form of. And that suggests that Christ had such a power, a status, that in spite of that, he did something completely unexpected, some completely, if you will, out of character. Gods right. hold on to their power. Gods hold on to their status. And, and any God worth that God's salt would do the same. Right. And yet, in spite of that, contrary to expectations about God, about emperors, about human beings, Christ gave up his, his power, his status, and became human and went to the cross. There is a great deal of truth in that, theological truth in that. But is that what Paul meant? Right. That's the question. The because interpretation says, because he was in the form of God, he did this. Because he had equal status with God, because of his divine equality, to be God is to be, to, to be the, the true God, is to be a God of self-giving surrender, right. of yeah. vulnerability, of uh, of giving oneself over in love so that the incarnation and the cross are not um, in spite of Jesus' divinity, but per precisely expressive of that, of that divinity, of that deity. So we learn a lot about what it means to be God. We learn a lot about what it means to be Christ. We also learn a lot about, about what it means to be a Christian, 
and and to be the church simply in that idea of perhaps and i would argue most likely because he was in the form of god this right. is what he did right this is to 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 coin or to to riff on a, a political um saying you know this is what democracy looks like <laughs> paul would say this is what divinity looks like right yeah i can even hear him chanting it you know walking down the street this is what divinity looks like <laughs> which which i mean the first one right the in spite of can actually have some pretty bad theological implications right god working against god's own character god yeah. changing of his own character right or god seeing there be a need in his character in order to change right but this other one as you're explaining kind of the because reality really provides a greater sense of response towards who God is and what God does versus God having to do something because we screwed up, right? As in it's like yeah. in response to what we do versus God, God is going to be God regardless of what we do. And we just so happen to get to see it in this canonic way, right? Yes, yes. And it also, in that same regard, I think connects back to the life of the Trinity. The life of the Trinity is a life of self-giving love and of even, if you will, vulnerability, and, and that that gets uh, expressed toward human beings in light of this need. It's still a divine response, but it's not an out-of-character response. Right. Uh, it is It is the ultimate, if you will, uh, divine response. Interestingly, even though no translations have that, I've I, I just actually finished writing an article about this for a journal, and... So I went and looked at half a dozen recent commentaries on Philippians too, on Philippians. And some of the more recent ones actually say in their commentary, I think we should translate this because or since, same meaning. Yeah. And yet um, it, I wouldn't say they're going at great lengths to push it at this point, but they're coming down on that side. So there may be a change in the way translations uh, look over the next, you know, couple of generations. It may take a while. Oh, that that's going to get us into uh, probably a conversation that I would like to have that I'm sure I can hear people going, what do you mean they're going to change? Translations are going to change, but I don't know if we have time, time for that today. Yeah. <laughs> well, they change all the time. A translation is an interpretation and interpretations change based on knowledge of all kinds of things, whether it's ancient texts or ancient customs or changes in scholarship. Right, right. Now, now, in, in terms of kenosis and Philippians, uh, because it's the only place it's really explicitly said, right, in Greek, but at least written, what was Paul trying to get into the minds of the people at Philippi in this expression? What was he trying to elicit, especially in this poetic way, when he's telling them to have have this mind of Christ and 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 have this self-giving reality? Yeah. Well, the allusion I made at the beginning of our conversation about translation difficulties here are are come to the to the fore but in chapter 2 verse 5 i think paul is pointing to the fact that you philippians are in christ that's 
That's your location. If in real estate, location is everything, it's true for Pauline theology and spirituality <laughs> yeah. as well. So you are in Christ, y'all, plural, you're in Christ together. What does that mean? It also means that, that Christ is in you. So you have this indwelling presence. So what does it mean for you as a Christian community to be in Christ and for Christ to be in you? It means that the story of Christ becomes your story. So Paul wants the Philippians who are having um, what appears to be two, two basic kinds of problems. Persecution from the outside. Paul says, you're sharing in the same agony, the same fight, the same struggle I am, agony in, agony in Greek. Um, and there's internal dissension. How, yeah. how, so that may be provoked by certain figures. There's two women mentioned at the end in chapter four who are in disputes. Uh, so Paul's eliciting wanting to elicit a response of greater humility, greater love. And he uses Christ, the story of Christ, as an example of that. Hmm. But he, it's, it's not like an example in the sense of, you know, go out and imitate some great baseball player in the way they you know, swing the bat. But rather that you, the community in Christ, now have the power of Christ through the Spirit to, to live out this story in, in a Christ-like way, in a cruciform hmm. way. Yeah. So he's really encouraging them to keep on keeping on uh, in one respect, because they are they're surviving this persecution, which is clearly happening. And he wants them to continue to lead, lead lives worthy of the gospel. And, and he uses kind of political language there to, to be a political entity in, in the space of the real world that embodies this gospel. It, it's what you said there, I think, is something that. Over time and in reading, I pick up more and more on Paul and what he's trying to do versus kind of our first attempt at Paul, you know, our first kind of readings of Paul, that Paul very, very rarely is encouraging people to go and do something as like as in go and sin no more, right? As if like it's within their willpower, as much as he is saying participating, whether it's in Christ or by the power of the spirit, you will not do these things anymore because you have this reality within you, right? This participation, this being in Christ that kind of changes up the narrative, I think, from the way that typically we as the church think about it, right? Go and just by, by sheer willpower, don't do those things, right? Or by sheer willpower, have more love. Where Paul might be saying, actually, you can participate in Christ that grows these things within you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And he, Paul, is pretty, I, will, I guess I would say adamant about um, the reality of this indwelling presence being exactly that transforming power. So when I talk about Paul's spirituality, on the one hand, I want to use the word cross-like, cross-shaped, Christ-like, cruciform. All That's one set of, of words. Scott McKnight uses the word Christoformity instead of right. cruciformity. Some other people have used that word too. Um, how do we get there? Uh so we have to bring in the other set of, of words. It's by being in Christ and Christ being within us. Participation leads to transformation. And it's right. by participation in Christ 
in the work of his spirit that we become like Christ. So we become like Christ by being in Christ, not simply, not simply by our own effort. We need the work of the spirit. And the work of the spirit is the work of Christ. Um, Christ is not physically present in the church. Christ is present by the spirit, which is why in Philippians, Paul refers to the spirit as the spirit of Jesus. Galatians, he calls the spirit the spirit of the son, spirit of Christ in Romans. I mean, the spirit, we always think of the spirit as either an independent third person of the Trinity, which I'm not against the Trinity, uh, or <laughs> as the spirit of the of God, as in God the Father. We sometimes miss the important connections between the spirit being the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. Therefore, the spirit is always going to work to make us more Christ-like. Right. And this might... And maybe this takes us in the wrong direction. And this this is, I'm throwing this out on you. We didn't email about this at all or anything. Okay. But, um, I'm game. Maybe this kind of helps us better understand the one time Paul uses the, this kind of phrase, the law of the spirit. Is that true? Do you think that might help in that phrase somehow? Well, there, there are a couple places. We have the law of the spirit. We also have the law of Christ. Right. Uh, law of Christ in Galatians 6, and then a similar phrase, usually translated something like law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9. Yeah, I mean, I think what we have in law of the spirit in Romans 8 is really sort of the principle of the spirit. Uh, the The principle, if you will, the... the uh, reality of Christ slash the Spirit being in the community and the community being in Christ. In Romans 8, in the first 9, 10, 11 verses, Paul interchanges in a very interesting way, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Spirit. Christ in you, Spirit in you, you in Christ, you in the Spirit. <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. Once yeah. you figure out what's going on, it makes perfect sense, but it, it can take a while to figure that out. Yeah. And what is going on? What is going on is that Paul understands human existence as being both like the air we breathe, something that surrounds us and something that's within us. So on the one hand, if you are outside of Christ, you are in the sphere of sin, kind of like a cosmic power. And that sphere is also within you. So in Romans 7, for instance, Paul speaks of uh, indwelling sin, making me do certain things. So mm. this, is that, this is that apocalyptic power that is both around us and within us. That's, that's the nature of human existence apart from God, apart from Christ. When a person comes to faith by the work of the Spirit and is baptized, faithed into Christ and baptized into Christ, the Spirit of Christ replaces both the indwelling sin and the outdwelling sin. Hmm. So this apocalyptic power that affects human beings from within and from without is now replaced by the spirit of God, spirit of Christ. And uh, another, it's one of the 
it's more than a metaphor, but one of the sort of understandings of human life and human existence that Paul has, similar to the idea of we're all slaves to something. Remember that some of us yeah. will remember the old, the old Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. Oh, yeah. It, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. <laughs> Paul has the same idea. We're slaves to something, either slaves to ourselves and to sin and, and to unrighteousness or injustice, or we're slaves to God, to Christ to others. Yeah. To yeah. So, yeah. And, and that I think maybe moves us into the topic of your, your new book, at least newer book. I mean, you're, you're one of those, one of those people that it just seems like every six months I look and there's another new book or, you know, something springing up that I just have to get, but participating in Christ where mm-hmm. you talk about what, what does this mean? This language to participate in Christ that, is looked at as kenosis or cruciformity, and how do we get to the point of participating in Christ? Yeah. Well, fortunately, we don't have to get there. For Christians, we're there. Uh, yeah. By virtue of our faith and our baptism, we have been the language of one scholar, E.P. Sanders. We have been transferred into Christ. Yeah. And we're there. Uh, so. That's the beauty of, of in Christ language that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to create it. We don't have to get into it. We're there. What is then the question is, what does it mean to be there? If location yeah. is everything, what does that location mean? And principally, it, it means to allow the work of Christ by the Spirit to form us individually or transform us, if you will, individually and corporately, individually and collectively into this Christ-like image. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're all gazing on him being transformed, metamorphosized from glory to glory. Um, This transformation that's taking place uh, as we move toward the the day when we see him face to face and when we will be, when we will know as we are truly and, and currently known. Um, So uh, in the book, participating in Christ, I go into great detail about this, but I've, I've also written a little booklet, which is really the first chapter of participating in Christ. There's a, there's a place in England that does a wonderful ministry of little booklets, 10,000 word booklets by great biblical scholars and, and some smaller ones like me um, uh, called Grove Books. Hmm. And if your listeners are interested in some really good material on just about any topic in biblical studies, ministry, theology, little tiny booklets, you can download them or have them send to you hard copies. And I have a little book there called Participation. Uh, I forget the subtitle. Something like Paul's Spirituality of, of Being in Christ. And it's a good summary of, of all these different, um, thir- what, I, what I label as 13 different aspects of being in Christ. Everything from becoming Christ-like in terms of self-giving love, of uh, being guided into mission that that embodies this in the in the world and uh, it's it's both individual and, and corporate. Yeah, and I think that I think that can be messy for some people to try and understand. And 
at, at the expense of an overgeneralization here, most likely because the way that we talk about it in the church doesn't often lend itself language to this participation, right? It often lends itself to that kind of, here's what humans do on this side, and this is just what we have to do, and then this is what God's going to do in response if we just do these things. Um, How might what you're talking about, how might kenosis and participation challenge the way that we think about what does it mean to be these people of Christ? Yeah. Well, one of the things I like to tell my students is if you read a letter like 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with very practical issues from sexuality to um, division in the church to uh, you know, all these lawsuits, people taking one another to court, he constantly brings them back to two sort of focal points that we need to keep in mind if we're going to be expressing our our Christian faith. And the first one, he's always getting his readers to look backwards. What happened in the cross and the resurrection? How is How does that, or how should that define our life right now? this issue we're dealing with, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and did it in a way that was not exploiting his power, but surrendering his status in love, how should that form your behavior now? So you you need to think theologically about these things. Right. The spirit doesn't just happen. You just need to be thought and discernment. He also gets them to look ahead to the fact that Jesus is going to return and there's going to be a bodily resurrection and a judgment. How does that shape your life? So Paul's always saying those two primary things, the first coming and the second coming, if you will, need to shape our individual and our corporate life in Christ. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's just focus on the first one. So I think many people in the church, we bring, we, we can't help it, but we bring our cultural mentality to our church life, our, our life in Christ, our church decisions. And so, you know, when we're having an argument about contemporary versus traditional worship in the church, <laughs> for instance, the first right. thing people say is, that doesn't meet my needs. Mm. If we think theologically about that, if we think canonically about that, if we think cruciformly about that, Paul's response would be something like, who cares? <laughs> because A, you're not here to meet your needs, you're right. here to give honor to God, but more importantly, collectively, we are here together to meet one another's needs. So right. let's see what it would mean if you're looking out for the good of this person, and this person's looking out for the good of you, maybe they'll come to some mutual understanding about what it means to be the body of Christ together, instead of asserting our so-called needs, which are really wants. Right. Um, we're very, Western culture is very individualistic, very self-centered, and the gospel of Christ crucified can overcome that. So one of the ways I like to talk about that is the cross needs to become not only the source of our salvation, but the shape of our salvation. Mm. It's not yeah. only the source of our life, but the shape of our life. Um, 
mundane, you know, mundane arguments and mundane issues, as well as very serious issues and matters, need to be thought of in this in terms of this um, cruciform way of of looking at things. You know, it's it's like my wheels are spinning in the sense of trying to kind of go back in my thirty plus years of being in the church, part of the church even actively engaged in leaderships of churches and things of that nature, that what you're saying, what you've written isn't, it's, it's, it's similar to the things that are being spoken, but those things that are being spoken in the church lack the depth that they need for that transformation, that transformative reality. Right. It's almost as if there's a sense of when we really understand cruciformity or kenosis and we really look at that kind of transformative reality of the spirit and what that participation does, it actually gets to a lot of the things that we say that we want to see, but we really lack the language or ability and means to actually show how this should be happening within the church. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, just starting with ministry, there's a new book out by a good friend of mine named Tim Gombis, G-O-M-B-I-S, called Power and Weakness. And he is, uh, the subtitle is Paul's Transformed Vision for Ministry. I was privileged to write the foreword to this book. And when it's a very, it's a pretty small book, less than 200 pages, but he tries to get people thinking in ministry about about this reality. But there's also been some interesting um, books by either by or for lay people on the on the centrality of of Christ in this canonic cruciform way um, for everyday living. And I think that's been the basic problem. No one's up until recently, not a lot of people have gotten this out into into readable form. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll yeah. be I'll be the first to admit my my work is primarily geared towards biblical scholars, theologians, seminary students, not to people in the pew. Although I do have a small book called Reading Paul, which is mostly for people in the pew, and a lot of these ideas are there. But um, I, I, unfortunately, these these books are not at my fingertips. They're in a different part of my house at the moment, so I can't give you specific names. But th- there are some books out there, recent books, that try to put some of this in in lay language. Um, one of them which, that is coming immediately to mind is a book by a woman named Laura Reese Hogan, whose the title of the book is, is something like. Um, not I, but Christ. It's a little, it's it's somewhere between my general writing and these more popular books, but it's certainly very readable. And yeah. it's a great book. She's Roman Catholic. And her first book, written first, I think, as part of her master's program somewhere, and it, it won awards. I mean, I was professionally envious of her. <laughs> so I, I actually started using that book instead of my own work in some of my courses on Paul's spirituality. <laughs> I, it, you know, it's been wonderful um, having this chat. And I feel like we barely even scratched a surface on mm. the depth of what Paul is doing the depth of what we could be discussing. Um, but we have to be honoring of your time that you would take this time. But before we go, 
you know, maybe especially those few books of yours that you wouldn't mind kind of shouting out so people know um, what books really to start, even the one to start with. Sure. Well, I think the book reading, Paul, is a very easy read. It's, again, fewer than 200 pages, small in size, and in, and it it gives a good introduction, in my opinion, to, to Paul. It's been used by a lot of people, including churches. So, uh, But for those who are ready to, to go a little bit beyond that, I would recommend, well, first of all, I already mentioned a little booklet, Participation. Um, but the, the, the book that has probably impacted the most people worldwide is the book Cruciformity, Paul's Narrative Spirituality of the Cross. It was published in 2001. It will come out this summer in a 20th anniversary edition wow. with a, a new foreword by none other than Nijay Gupta. Oh, look at that. Yeah, whom you've had on your podcast just recently. And I write a long afterword about the the way the book has um, been received. And that'll be out, I think, in July. Um if you go to if you go to Wikipedia and look me up, you can look at other books. But th- those are the two. I I the booklet participation, the the tiniest thing I've written, the the book on on uh, Paul uh, that's just called Reading Paul, and then Cruciformity. Most people have said a Cruciformity even Cruciformity, even though it's de- in depth and deep, is quite accessible and readable. Yeah. I agree. I very much agree. Dr. Gorman, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, my pleasure. Just getting to kind of hear hear from you, hear your thoughts, kind of discuss this for people. Um, I hope that maybe we'll have you on in the future again to kind of go a little bit deeper uh, on, on certain subjects. But thanks so much for taking the time today to be with me. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks to all your listeners. 